So, Samir, I just want to welcome you to uh, the podcast. Obviously, we're veterans here over at the um, Angry Victorians podcast, so you're in good hands with all the other episodes we've done. Um, thanks very much for coming on. Um, before I do you a disservice, how do you say your last name? Is it Bangar or Banger? Or I've noticed you've got a number plate with Banger on it. Um, that sounds very Ocker Australian when I say it. Yeah, yeah. So it originally started off back in the old Indian days as Banga, but that got translated into Banger very quickly here. So I run with the Australian pronunciation because that seems to be more memorable. And that tends to work just fine for me. So I'm very happy with Banger, although certain magistrates like to get it right, like yourself and go for Banga, which is a proper pronunciation. Cool. Um, so were you, are you born in Australia or do you come over? No, mate, I came over, but very, very young. So it was only a few months when I did come over, a few months of age when I did. So my recollection of anything else or any other country is minimal to non-existent, really. Anything I've spent outside has been a lot later on in life or as hol holidays, stuff like that. So very minimal. I spent most of my time in Australia, bar a few months. I guess even if you added every holiday up, it's still not even a few months. Are you um, so? Um, do you, are you still very traditional though? Like, do you have what's what's your sort of background? So Sikh Punjabi, which is northern India, traditional. Uh, yes and no. Certain things, yes. Like for example, I really like ethnic clothes. I enjoy wearing Indian clothes, but at the same time, I'm not going to wear them to court. For example, I'm not going to wear them down the street. I have done it previously, and I can tell you it's not exactly, depending on the area you're in, that not exactly go down well. <laughs> but at the same time, I do enjoy wearing it. Otherwise, when it comes to family traditions and stuff, there are some that we adopt, others we don't. We're pretty liberal and unorthodox as a family generally. I don't think we've hit the standard conventions of the typical Punjabi Indian, whether it's age of marriage, whether it's time to have kids, all that type of stuff. We've done things very differently. However... However, we do like to uphold some of our traditions and there are certain things to do. Like I can speak my language and I can speak Punjabi and Hindi and I, I want to maintain that through my children and into the future because I think that's important. I think being bilingual is important. I think it adds to Australian culture rather than takes away, especially when we look at the fact that Australian culture is quite young in the first place and let's not forget most of us are migrants, if not all of us, except for Indigenous Australians, really, or First Nations people. If you look at when how long Indians have been here, which most people don't know, Punjabi Indians have been here 17, some say late 1700s, some say early 1800s. Camel traders have been around for a long time, nearly as long as, or if not, just as long as the Chinese. And most people have no idea about that. So it's always interesting to hear, have a second generation or third generation Aussie tell you to go back to where you came from. When literally speaking, you're probably incorrect. Probably got bigger roots than you do. So I do love that. I used. To, I wish I knew this when I was a kid, because then I could come back with that. It's unfortunate that I came to the knowledge of late twenties. Cool. Um, so we had a uh, we had a Sikh when he came to school, and he ran a turban. I take it you guys are being unorthodox means you don't have to wear one. Is that how that works? So if we were Amritari, which is another, like Amritari Sikh, or what I would say is the closest explanation of is baptised Sikh, right? So you baptise Christian, we have Amritari Sikh. Then we yeah. definitely need to wear one. Now, I'm not, neither is my brother, neither is my dad, but my dad still wears one. It's, 
if you are Matari, then you need to practice it properly. I guess you have to fulfill the five Ks and different aspects of the religion. Since we aren't, we don't necessarily do everything by credit, like that complete standard. It's a little bit different. My brother did wear a turban, yeah. So he obviously stood out a lot, especially in games when we were younger. I never have, so I don't have that side of it. So even when it comes to any discrimination or racial vilification, I, mine was secondary. His was a lot heavier than I ever got because obviously he stood out. It was pretty obvious. He was different to things like that. But generally speaking, now he's cut his hair, I must say, and there are a lot of people who do cut their hair. But if you are, again, Amritari Sikh, then you wouldn't. You'd keep your hair uncut, your beard untrimmed, and you'd practice it a bit more closely. You'd also pray a little bit more than, I guess, un the uninitiated would, to say, to use that phrase, I should say. We had, um, we, we had a Sikh, and I don't, I don't know whereabouts he was from, but he, um, he had like one, of those, one of the bracelets, um, and he also yeah, had yeah, like a little, and he had a little knife with him all the time. I don't know if that's called a kerpan or something. And I was like, "How are you allowed to carry that?" And he had like an exemption under religious as long as it wasn't sharp. And I was like, "There's a whole bunch of stuff that I never knew about." But so it's always been interesting to learn about um, other cultures and things. But he um, he didn't have to wear his turban all the time. But he had a lot better hair than most of the girls, which was amusing. He always washed it, and it was because uh, I always thought if it's up there all the time. Surely it's in, in, a, in a bad state. But it was always silky smooth. Is that, uh, do you have one of those little um, yeah. bracelets? What are they called? I do. So it's called Kara, K-A-R-A. So I do. I wear one. This is basically the main thing I wear. I don't have the kapan because I'm not initiated, so I don't actually wear that. Now, that would be only Amritari Sikhs who wear that, who wear the kapan. But, yes, most of them are allowed to carry it. In Australia, generally speaking, you're allowed to carry it providing it's of a certain size and it's usually worn very close to the body you don't see it on most people unless they're at the temple then sometimes they're a bit more visible generally speaking it's under the clothes is how it's usually worn and yeah that, that's that's exactly what you said before is right it's called a kirpan k-i-r-p-a-n right. cool um so Another question, obviously, you're a lawyer, hence why um, that's how I've seen you on Instagram. Obviously, you're a pretty big deal out there. What are you at now, like 24,000 followers? I've got almost 800, so we're much the same. Um, did you always want to be a lawyer? <laughs> no, definitely not. It was not my career ambition at any stage of my life. It just became a thing after I decided my first degree wasn't good enough. So I had a business degree, which to me was very general. And what I realized pretty quickly is I could use it. Don't get me wrong. It's not a complete waste, but it really wasn't probably going to get me to where I wanted to be. I needed a backup and decided to do law as a backup. So that was a second degree to kind of backup. Just a, just a cheeky flex there that you've got more than one degree. Fair enough. Um, so um, just wondering, when you started out being a lawyer, what did, you, um, what did you want to get into when you first started? Was it business law or employment law like you are now or? criminal, etc. Never. Uh, look, criminal was the area where I ended up getting to in the first instance. It became one of my specialties. However, it wasn't where I wanted to go. I guess I just had some practical experience in crim because I worked with a barrister very closely for a bit. Then after that, there was just work around in that area. Originally, I thought potentially family law was where I wanted to be just because I had an interest in the system and especially with the 
what I find are the inadequacies in family law. There does seem to be a lot of inequality. There does seem to be a lot of drama. I mean, the area, given what it is, kind of explains part of it. However, I do feel that some people don't get a fair go in family law. So that was one of my interests and just my subjective circumstances and my background led me towards that. Didn't really start practicing family till after I had a few years of crim under my belt. So that's where I came and that ended up being my say. It's my most enjoyed area, but now employment, crim and family are three areas I do. Look, we do other stuff as well, of course, and human rights is it goes across all three. And, in fact, not even all three. It goes across very many, many areas as a whole. But if I was to classify myself, it would be probably employment, crim, human rights, and with a bit of family. So it's interesting, though. But the good thing is when you have a bit of litigation experience, you can kind of go to, you can do the area you need to do. Advocacy is the most important and being able to know at least the general law and be able to build upon it. Because, I mean, you can know the areas of law quite well. There are people who are better at typing, writing, and not very good at the advocacy side of it. Then there's the opposite. There's people who are very good at advocacy who don't enjoy the typing and drafting side. Now, some people are good at both, but there's not a lot of people who do that. I, for example, can do the affidavits and general writing, but I do prefer being in court on my feet and speaking. That tends to be where I enjoy doing it. However, if I really want to sit down and write, I can do it and I do it pretty well, although that's probably a, that's too subjective an observation that comes down to people who have seen my work and who can really make a, that judgment. That's similar to, um, yeah, so I was saying the, uh, some police are obviously better at the tactical side of things, whereas um, other ones are better at typing and doing the affidavits and doing the investigations. I was never a big fan of doing like an eight-month investigation and then uh, and then catching someone, whereas other people used to love um, trying to trying to finally catch someone out. I just preferred being given a picture, given an address, told what they're doing, and then going to the house and getting them out of the house. Like that was that was sort of our thing. So I was happy to like, type up the um, the op order and stuff, like the operations order to do um, and like get the photos together, do the route in and out, all those things. But an actual like three-fold along investigation did not excite me in the least. So I understand where you're coming from with that sort of thing. Um, but did you find that there was another thing too is I find a lot of coppers don't like being on the stand. So do you enjoy having coppers on the stand and then going through there, like crossing the aisle and dotting the tea? Look, it's yes is the short answer. I have to say it also does depend on the copper because – when you have police that you don't necessarily like their statements or you feel there's a few inadequacies in their statements, potentially a bit of exaggeration, that makes it all the more fun, right? Because at that point, you really want to point that out and get that out there. However, there are cops that you can just see that are just completely, they've done their job to the T. There's nothing they've done wrong. And do I really gain anything from trying to hammer them or trying to just to piss them off or get under their skin? The answer is no. And as much as I keep look, there's some people that absolutely hate police. I don't, and I never will. I do dislike a lot of police that I've dealt with, don't get me wrong, and I think there's good and bad of everything. And as you've said, it's very similar in, the, in my, my profession as well as yours or your former profession. There's good cops, bad cops, good lawyers, bad lawyers. I don't like, I've had certain matters where the police have basically parodied each other's statement yet. I, I just don't understand how that's okay because it should come from your own perspective, your own version yet they'll try and read someone else's version and come up with their own. 
there might be circumstances we genuinely don't remember, or sometimes it feels like a bit of overcompensation to try and get the facts very similar. That kind of stuff irks me a little. But, man, look, a lot of matters are very simple for police where the copper is reacting to something that's already happened. All they can really do is go and interview the complainant or the complainants. They use that and really their statement is just piecing it all together. They went to the, you know, they went to the complainant, they spoke to the complainant, got a version, this is what it is, this is what they observed when they were there. And then what do you do with that? Then really that's just simple. You let that go through to the keeper because in the end they've done their job and due diligence. Now, if that copper did something a little bit not, or let's just say a little bit mischievous and added a little bit of extra emphasis to certain things, moved a bit of evidence from one room to another, yeah, that's a bit different. That's what you want to get underneath of. And this is why people need to know as well. It's not just about hammering the opposition or hammering the other side because we're both there to do a job. You need the cop, you need the prosecutor, you need the defence solicitor, even if the person's guilty or not guilty, plead or not plead. Whether the charge is completely proven or not, you do need all three to do their job. And if a job's done properly, I think we all get along all right. It's when one of us doesn't do our job properly, the other one starts shitting on the other or gets a bit upset with the other person. And I think that's when we see issues. Problem is, last two years has done a lot of reputational damage to police. And I think a lot of reputational damage just generally to the trust in the system. And that's something I think we need to work on. Now, that's a very long-winded answer for what you asked, but I think it's probably taken a couple of steps further as well. No, that's fine. So you, you also get into, um, you're talking about the human rights sort of things. Now, Victoria, is Victoria still the only one that has a human rights charter? No, Queensland does as well. So Queensland also has a human rights charter. It's treated, it's not too different from Victoria, but a little bit different. And I think the ACT does. I haven't done a lot of ACT work in that realm, so I believe the ACT does as well. So three, the two two states in the territory. Um, and when you've got Victoria with your employment law, are you doing much down here with in relation to the mandates, um, employment law, and human rights charter? Like, as a human rights charter, is it literally just a piece of paper that looks good but does nothing? I would say at, over the last two years, that's exactly what it was, an unenforceable instrument that meant shit all. Really, it was. It looks all good in theory. You speak about it. You think we've got all this, but when you put it into practice, the pandemic has made it redundant. Now, what I'm hoping is over the next year or so, as the declarations drop, pandemics apparently end, people are now all safe all of a sudden, we can actually go back to looking at discrimination. But, man, the last two years, effectively what we had at the bare minimum was a suspension of our human rights. That's probably one way to look at it. The other way is a reality check that our human rights were never strong enough in the first place in this country and need to be fixed. We were just lucky that nothing came to pass. So whichever way you take or look at it, still a problem. Well, I think the, um, the fact that if you can put human rights on hold and think you'll find that you're probably right but they don't they didn't really stand for anything in the first place it was just a, a bit of a pick and choose on whether they do anything um have you been watching the Essen football club issues this week i haven't so i'm not a i'm not an act follower of sport i should say every now and again when one of my clients happens to play one of the big footy leagues or 
happens to play one of the national sports, that's when I tend to pay a bit more attention to what's going on. Otherwise, I haven't. So I am completely absent of any knowledge here. Might want to give me a rundown. No, no, I won't. I won't jump in and uh, have a go, Sean. That one then. Um, so, you run your own business now, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's right. So and the firm's mine. We've got a few people it? working under us now. And how long have you been running? Uh, I'd say it's just over two years now. We're pretty young. As a business, so I've been special counsel, special counsel, and other various taglines at different firms. Like special counsel is basically the partner level, or you could say someone. It's just another level, another tag for partner, effectively, right? That same, same level, a bit different to associate. But look, I've had this firm for two years, so we're still quite young. We're still in the building phase, I guess you could say. It's just over the last couple of years, we're one of the few firms that actually looked into human rights, and I guess you could say paid attention to clients who were stuck in various situations. I will say I did do a lot of this work prior, especially in the human rights realm and helping people with certain issues such as inequality. It's just over the last two years because it expanded to such an extent, that's how I became a bit better known in the firm. So um, having your own business now and having it in two years, so has COVID been good for you or bad for you? Good. It's been good. And I don't mean to, and this is the thing, I say that with the, mo the most respect that I can to people that have suffered through the last two years. And that's why for a number of months last, I think it was last year, we just did free legal work because I did not suffer the same hardships as other people. I have been lucky that I come from a family that was able to support me and I had the support around me. So I was able to put fees on hold for people for a long period of time. Not everyone was in that position. And I completely get that. So for me, it's been good. And I don't know how to put that in a way. I just hope people don't take issue with it or think that I'm somehow denigrating them in any way. It's just what I've done, I've been able to get through it. I guess I had the basis to do it. I had to support the family and I set up quick enough and at the right time so it worked out. I also know other people who have been in a similar position, but then I know people who have been in the exact opposite position. So what people also need to know is, even though I've done pretty well, I think I've done well over the last two years, I have helped as many people as I possibly can over the last two years who haven't done well, and that's why I've tried to provide as much information and as much assistance as I can. I can't remember, again, I can't remember when it was, but for six months or so, we didn't bill people. We gave free legal advice to businesses, to people who were suffering. We did that for a while. Eventually, I realized I couldn't keep doing that because it's not exactly a great business model, but I have bills to pay just like everyone else, so I have to move away from that. So I've done well, in short, and I've tried to do my best to compensate, and people should also know that I do community work now, always will do, and I do my bit to try and give back where I can. Not everyone's going to understand that, but if you look at my Instagram, just one part of it, but if, if you speak to people who have engaged with us, you'll see that that's what we've been doing and we will continue to do. Um, I mean, I wasn't trying to throw any shade at you or anything. Jim said he um, he'd also done better because a whole lot of people had lost all their uh, they'd lost their jobs, couldn't work anywhere. Um, so Jim ended up taking on a lot more people because they left under mandate. So I mean, it tends to be if you've been 
trying to look after people, trying to help people out through the through the pandemic. You've, you've generally done well, either that or the government looked after you like big business and that they did there. Um, I'll just go from there into politics from that, being that the government has picked and choose which business they can, you can and can't work in, what is essential, what isn't essential. Um, how do you feel like we fix that? Like there's the whole the voting system at the moment. Um, like how do you feel about compulsory voting, for example? Or how do you feel we've got to where we are now where the approval rating for a prime minister is 31% or whatever, and yet he's still the prime minister? Like how do you, how do you feel about the government and how we can fix it? My opinion is a little bit controversial. I've got a few different layers of an answer. It's not just a simple answer for starters. If we, as simplified as I can make it, I would say that I think state government's redundant. I don't think it's necessary in a country of 22 to 23 million people. I know a lot of people don't like that, but that's my opinion. Compulsory voting, is it really necessary? The answer to me is no. Not because I don't think people should vote. I do. But I think a lot of people who are voting are throwing their vote away. And I don't think that's necessary either. I think voting should be because you want to do it and you're doing it with the intention of trying to better your country, trying to better politics. I think it needs to be a lot more transparency. There needs to, our constitutional rights need to be stronger and our politicians need to be real people who have actually gone, had life experience, not just career politicians. I think career politicians are one of the worst things that have ever happened to this country and will continue to make it worse because they don't have the life experience. They haven't done what you've done. They haven't done what I've done. We don't want people who were just raised and what's the, I'm just, I'm trying to think of a word that's not too strong, but not too weak, but groomed by the, that's kind of groomed by junior labor or junior liberals. You're then given a way to think, and you're, that's just ingrained in you as you go. And look, I've had my time where I used to be in the Young Labor Party and I realised how stupid that was and I realised how stupid politics was and I wasn't the type of person who would do something just because I'm told. So I left very quickly. But that I'm glad I came to that. Other people don't. They want to achieve something through the party. I can see some leaders from that particular realm when I was around there. And again, not to throw shade on anyone, but they didn't really do anything else except want to be a politician and their career was based, that was their career path, get into politics in any way you possibly can. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. So I also think that we need smaller, we need a coalition. We need, that's the only way to really hold the actual person in power or people in power accountable. If one party has too much power, such as we do now, even though it's at a really low percentage, really low percentage, the lowest in history, I believe, or second lowest from my understanding, they can still make decisions and get stuff through when there should be full transparency. I also don't think there's a lot of difference between the Labor and Liberal Party. They play up little issues to make it sound like they actually are different, but they're not. In my opinion, they're very similar. They're effectively, they're not even two sides of the same coin. There's basically maybe four or five issues that they differ on and they make it look like they actually are completely different people and players. I think if we had coalitions that actually said to these parties, well, hold on, before you get that through, what the hell is this going to do for our country? What are you doing for our people? We want to check this 
and we want to actually change some things before you get it through, things might be different. I mean, that would make a big difference. So I think those issues are some of the factors that go into why our poli- why politics in this country is so bad. Also, donations. Why are bigger parties doing better from donations than smaller parties are? That's inequality in itself. So to really get into it as a party, you're already struggling. And that's not right. That's not fair. It's different if you're Clive Palmer. You do whatever the hell you want. You're never going to struggle for money. But it's very different if you're a genuine small party trying to get into it. And that needs to be rectified. And I'm sure every small party goes through that. And that's not right because that's not the way it should be structured. Then when you look at those, when you go to the ballot paper and look at it, a lot of people just don't seem to give it enough attention. They'll start, they'll tick whatever's easiest. So I go below the line. Other people don't. They'll go above, which is fine. But the thing is then you need to really preference properly. And there are different views on preferencing. I've spoken to Malcolm Roberts, who thinks preferencing is great for younger, for smaller parties. I personally think it plays a part sometimes, but I don't think it's completely correct either. I think preferencing is also making it easier for the bigger parties to stay where they are. I genuinely think we need proper coalitions that could fix it. I mean, I don't think preferences are going to work that way. So how do we do it exactly? That's a much harder question that I don't have answers to. I think we need someone really specialised. But I do feel that getting rid of some of the layers is a start, is actually voting for smaller parties to give them more power. That's another thing. And getting rid of career politicians, however the hell you do that, because I don't think they're making decisions for the betterment of the people. They're making decisions that are better for their political life cycles. When you say the preferencing system, um, are you saying like how we have it in Victoria with the, the group voting ticket? Or are you talking how to vote cards where bigger parties are saying vote us one and then vote two, three to six, etc.? Look, that I don't think you can change. I'm talking more about how they're applied, right? So if it goes, even though you may not vote for someone, your vote seem like if you go from one to six, for example, your vote goes from if party four, three, four is redundant and falls to the next one, even though you may not actually give a shit about that person. Why can't we just leave it blank if that's the case? We just vote one, maybe. But then again, as I said, Malcolm Roberts has given me a very different version where he thinks it's great for smaller parties. And I'm not an expert on it. That's just my, I'd say, more a layperson view. So that's probably, you'd need someone who's a bit more special to say, but that's the way I see it coming across. And I see people getting preferenced who shouldn't be preferenced. And, yes, so I guess that kind of plays a part what you're saying, the how-to-vote cards as well. But then again, then you need to blame that party who's made the how-to-vote card. And, look, how-to-vote cards shouldn't be countrywide. It shouldn't be party-wide because in different areas you may or probably should vote differently. In some areas, you want to give more preference to certain parties and others you don't. Not every Labor minister, for example, is a nutwit. There are a lot of them who are, but there's some good ones. Not every Liberal minister is a nutjob. Some of them are, but there's good ones. So also there you need to be right because you want to give the preference to the right people. So I think I don't even know how you'd fix it, but that's a small rundown. Fair enough. Um, have you ever thought about running for politics yourself? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I openly say I couldn't do it. I just couldn't handle this forth and I would lose it at someone and I'd probably end up needing someone like myself at some point. I I try to be as nice as I possibly can to people. That's how I live life. Be nice and try and get things done in a civil, amicable manner. 
but I also turn very nasty and aggressive when I need to be. You know, I, I can openly say that because people have seen that side of me. You do the wrong thing, and if it's wrong by the people that I'm trying to assist, I will do what I need to do. And this is legally, of course, not anything outside that realm. But when it comes to politics, I think you need to have a certain facade and a certain image and be able to stay calm, be able to weather that storm. I, for example, probably too aggressive for politics. And who knows, maybe in some years' time that might work, but right now I don't think it will. And all that's going to end up happening is people are going to post me as a very aggressive person and I think people are going to misread what I do. And I think it happens to a lot of politicians now. There are politicians who are really genuine and good at what they do, but because the other parties are able to get some kind of dirt on them about their personality, that hits them. Like in the end, I'll give a very simple example, right? If someone has an affair, as much as that's ethically corrupt and it's wrong, whatever it is, I, I get it. But does that, does that automatically make them a bad politician per se? I don't think so. That's my personal opinion. I think they look like an idiot. They probably are an idiot in their personal lives, but doesn't mean they've made the worst financial decisions for the country, though. But other people don't see it that way. And I think my views and stuff like that probably don't help either. But I think, um, like, with that, everybody makes mistakes. Like, it's sort of, I think a lot of the time that is how you resolve it. And, like, if you've made a mistake when you're 25 and then you're 50 and running politics, like, you've probably learned from that. And I think that's where the difference comes in from career politicians who have spent the last 25 years to 30 years doctoring their social media, um, you know, wheeling and dealing, getting dirt on other people so that nobody docked on them for that. And um, so... I think some of the best advice you get from people are people who've messed up a whole bunch of things in their life. You know, like you look at rehab, for example, with people who, had, like, who used to be heroin addicts. Like, the best person to speak to is a reformed heroin addict. So I feel like if you've been if you've been through some things, had a lot of life experience, like everyone talks about. Um, not that many of the politicians we have at the moment appear to have any, but if you've been there, experienced things, you can you can see where things come from being on the other side of it. Um, like as a copper, like I, I had a lot of empathy for a lot of people because I sort of, I was able to see what led to where they were and that's one of the big reasons why I've run for politics because a lot of, you'd see a lot of the, the law that had been written and as a trade-off, you could you could already see how it was doomed to fail. Like going around to a country station, like country towns, for example, there's two pubs, no reception, the roads are crappy and no taxis. You, you're basically asking for people to drink drive home. You know, they, they can't even, there's there's no taxis, there's no local public transport, they don't live near the pub, and yet, but yet you still need to keep your local business running. So they'll go there, drink beers, and then they'll try and ring their missus. They can't because there's no reception. And then, you know, like it's you're setting people up for failure, and I think that's where a lot of people don't, uh, don't understand that if you write a law based off something that happened in Spring Street, you have no idea how it translates out onto the road. Um, so I, I do think there's a lot of people like yourself who are like, well, I mean, I'm not saying you did, but I mean, there's plenty of times I've been, like, as a younger person, I went on footy trips and did whatever. I'm sure there's plenty of photos of me somewhere dressed up in drag or something that's going to come out. And it's like, does that mean I can't be a politician in the future? It's like, I guess the people will decide that. Or does that mean that people will go, you know what, he's just a normal guy who has learnt some life lessons and he's moved on from that. So I, I get where you're coming from and I'm obviously not a big enough deal yet for people to be coming after me in the media. So it'll be interesting to see if I do get elected where, where it goes from there. But 
Um, I'd, I'd love for more people who are just normal people driving a truck, lawyers, teachers, nurses, etc., to then you know be able, be able to come forward with their like their input because I think the more input we can have, the better. Um, I do, however, know a party. That no, I completely is, agree. And look, what you're saying is right. I was going to say, what you're saying is right. I completely agree with you. And really, people need to look at that life experience. It's vital. And that's what I want. Because if someone's made mistakes, they know how to actually bring themselves back from it. If you haven't made a mistake in your life and your life's been perfectly easy, you then get to a point as a prime minister of a country, for example, you actually find a failing or find an issue. You're not going to know how to deal with it. You do better in other relationships after you've probably gone through a couple yourself. I'm not saying a relationship should be terrible, but you need to have certain adversity to build your character and build yourself as a person. And your example of the pub is actually spot on. It, there's a literal example of a magistrate who was in an indige heavily Indigenous community who retired because he thought the law was not, it was not, it was not fair for a similar reason because drink driving was quite much the norm and it seemed to hit Indigenous Australians a lot harder than it did white Australians or other immigrant Australians. And not because they didn't want to, it just became, it was so normal for them to drink and they didn't have reception or they wouldn't have another option. There was no taxi. And basically he was having to put these people in jail because of the third, fourth, fifth offence. And he said outside of that, it, they're actually quite good people. But when it came to drink driving, they, they weren't. They just, they just kept committing the same offence. The law said you have to do it this way. However, if we look at how it's applied and the reasons on the fact that we don't even have the bloody infrastructure. What are you meant to do? And that law is a one-size-fits-all which doesn't work and it never will, and that's where inequality comes from. The irony behind it is one-size-fits-all is in its inequality and it's a, it's a centric inequality waiting to happen or it's the most inequal thing you could possibly do. Even though some people say, well, having different laws to different people is actually not right and not fair, it kind of is fairer that way. Because the same thing that you find or the same thing that could be illegal for one person shouldn't be for another. And, for example, I'll use drugs. I really don't think for small quantities of most, of a, not most, of certain drugs, people should be hammered for it. There are certain drugs that I can't see any good from. Crystal meth is one. But, for example, marijuana, although I don't smoke it, I never intend to, I don't think it needs to be hammered down as hard as it is. And there's other drugs that I could name, which I won't, because it just probably won't sound good, but I think it's very similar in the sense that it doesn't need to be targeted as badly as it is. It's, I mean, there's other countries that are doing different things, like Portugal, Netherlands, etc. Like they, they're looking at things differently, and it's, they've had different outcomes. And again, they're different countries. So whether they, they translate over here is, is another question, but at least the fact that we could have that discussion would be something. Same as like nuclear power over here, we've just decided to stop talking about it because it's become a dirty word. Um, I just, I don't know when Australia turned into, like turned from a place where, like we were leading the, leading the world in IVF um, treatments. We were, we were actually making biofuel. We were doing a whole bunch of stuff down here. And then at some point we turned around and went from a country where we were trying to advance it and taking risks and, you know, that sort of thing. And then it turned into tall poppy syndrome that anybody who is trying to better themselves or better the country or has a, has a choice that's um, 
has a train of thought that goes miles out of where the normal thinking is, they just get whacked. So now I feel like the culture that we've got at the moment is so anti anybody trying to strive that now we've been given two parties basically that spend the whole time trying to whack the other one and neither of them is actually going out on a limb. And that's sort of one thing I learned in the federal election was, you know, Heston would come out and, and say some new policy that he'd come out with and within three days the two major ones had picked it up, like the Disaster Relief Australia, for example, we, he was talking about doing a peace call and then within three days they'd both given $30 million as a promise to Disaster Relief Australia, which is a great outcome for them. I mean, it doesn't get us any credit, but, I mean, it, it sort of achieves the goal, you know, and it's this is one of the things when I, I speak to other minor parties and they're like, what are, how can we help? What are we doing? And I was like, all you need to do is come out with a policy push it hard enough, people agree with it, one of the main two will pick it up. I mean, that doesn't give you a wage and I've got to go back and do whatever it is I'm going to do in the future. But, you know, if I've got if I've got 50 days left to to achieve something, like people are welcome to send me as many hashtags as they want and I'll put them out there and then maybe Liberal or Labor will run with it and then do something. If we can make a change that way, then I feel like that's a win. Um, but, yeah, it's just I don't know when we when we turn to a place where we can't have discussions anymore, I think that's where freedom of speech has really popped a bit of a whack. I don't know if you've had anything to do with freedom of speech in legal as well. Oh, a lot. Yeah, a lot, a lot. So, look, that I, I don't know exactly when, but the last two years freedom of speech has curtailed completely. I have pretty aggressive views on freedom of speech, so, like, people aren't going to accept what I say, and I know that. I, I can kind of see why sometimes. I think you need the good and the bad, and the good will overtake the bad. That's the way I look at it. Freedom of speech is kind of like open market. Yes, there are going by telling people you can't speak about certain things, it doesn't fix the problem. And yes, perhaps there are limits to that, but I think racism is a good example of it. If you just try to stop that person doing it openly, all that's going to do is push it under, and that will come out in another way, which is probably more serious. I think you let them have their say to an extent, and you let society take care of it because that person will then be ostracised from society because it doesn't work. Or when they say all those people coming from overseas are taking our jobs, well, okay, try and stop it then. Stop them taking jobs. Maybe you should go do it instead, but no, you won't. And a lot of Aussies don't want to do the job. That's why we've got people coming from overseas to fill that. So I think freedom of speech is kind of like that in terms of other stuff that we've spoken about. And obviously the pandemic and some of the mandates are right up there. If you had any view that countered what the government said, you were a herring. You were terrible. You were a shocking person. You're going to kill your grandma. You're going to kill their grandma. And how the hell people made that the center of attention, I don't know. Especially when there, the studies weren't in. I, look, I'm not a doctor, but I definitely had a lot of mates and a lot of acquaintances who were feeding me information that told me this is complete, something's not right here. Spoke to Jay Bhattacharya, as you saw the other day, you spoke to him as well. And he clearly said, I think we we're on the same page that transmission is pretty much the same. Some people should get the vaccination, some people shouldn't. It's that simple. But we've made it into a thing that every single person needs to get it. And how we cannot have an alternate view or at least propose an alternate view to have a discussion about it, it's shocking. And then that was made into something like called political correctness then it was politically incorrect to speak about it because you're killing grandmas. And the logic there defies me because I just don't get it, really don't. 
But that's the fact. That's where we got to in Australia, and that doesn't. This is what I mean. Then the lack of human rights has allowed this. If there was a stronger rights notion here, I don't think this would have been a problem. I think we need to do a lot more. We need to address this in the future so it doesn't happen again. But I'm completely with you. Freedom of speech here has been interesting to say the least. And just so people know, when it comes to political free speech, it's not completely, it's not, how do I say, it's not unfettered. As much as you may think it is, you think you may think we have a great constitution, but I employ you to actually look at it. Our constitution sucks. It's really not great. There are many better constitutions around the world and ours needs a lot of assistance. So stop banking on the constitution and you'll see a lot of the arguments that have gone up, especially in the last two years, have not had any success. Our constitution needs a lot of help. Um, even just little things um, where, you know, you look at social media, um, do you find that different posts that you put up get different traction from like, Instagram or Facebook or those sorts of places? Like, how, how far does the whole censorship go? I think the censorship has cut down a little bit lately, which is interesting, and I think that's telling us that the discussion is now becoming more open. But I can tell you this, there was a point where I put a story up that might have anything to do with vaccination and bang, it was gone. I went from several thousand viewers to less than a grand at some point. I deleted it and I put something else up. It was actually interesting. One of the one of the ways I checked it is, and people can say that I'm full of shit, I don't actually care. I ended up putting up a picture of myself up with go-go dancers, half-naked go-go dancers, and my shirt was like unbuttoned to probably my belly button at that point too. And that photo did so freaking well when it comes to it, I'm realizing what, why does that photo, because I've got half naked girls there, do well when it has nothing to do with anything? No information, no nothing. It's just softcore porn. Yet that happened to be fine. I can put my butt out apparently. I can put my nipple on there. That's completely okay. But if I speak about COVID, that's not. Man, it was shocking. And then I started, that's why I actually changed. If you go down my page, so I haven't gotten rid of anything yet, you'll see that. I started, I got to this point where it was all COVID-related stuff and my page just got hit and hit harder and hit harder. Then all of a sudden I changed it up and started posting pictures of me, family, dogs, random shit to just hopefully fix it up. And that did temporarily. Then you'd put a couple of COVID-related posts up and bang, it was down again. Then I'd speak about free speech even, down. I put one up about Indigenous Australians and the Constitution, shocking, no traction whatsoever. And I was really surprised by that. But anyway, none. Then I just... I put up, I think I put up a couple of not completely topless, but shirts like shirtless photos to a certain extent. Boom, straight up there. I was I was up in Sunshine Coast, did a reel in there, and for some reason that went really well. So it doesn't make any sense to me, but for some weird reason, all I see is Instagrams trying to really promote a certain view. But I reckon if I had have sat there and said, "All you bloody anti-vaxxers need to die," or "All your anti-vaxxers are shocking, you're killing grandma," I think I would have got a lot of traction and bring a brown guy that would have pushed you straight to the top. And, that, and I could have pulled that my barn as well. I had my bangle on, and it just would have been there. Look, mate. Oh, no. He's gone. <laughs> he's just gone on a rant, and now he's just disappeared. That's disappointing. That was really angry Victorian. That would have been great. So, uh, yeah, thanks to the, the censorship demons. Obviously, we had a little bit of malfunction there. We're back into it now. Um, maybe don't talk about censorship anymore or we'll get cancelled again. Uh, or just uh, whilst we're trying to get away from censorship, we'll jump onto some less controversial topics. Pre-workouts. Are you? Do you take pre-workout or are you not into it? No, I don't. 
I don't. And that's when the gremlins really took over the episode. Uh, So we'll have to finish it there and we will finish part two with Samir very soon. Thank you.